Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest today is William Anderson. He's author of The Price of Perfect, What Could Be the Cost of Standing by Your Beliefs in a Divided America? While the book is a novel, it brings to the surface issues that tend to inflame. Ironically, it is not so much the issues as the silos people put themselves in, so that conversation is all but impossible. His novel is a template for issues that can be discussed, and the book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And for everything about William Anderson, go to williamandersonwriter.com, and you can follow him on Facebook and LinkedIn. And William, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ira. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. I think the first question is, how did you get the middle name Dub? You know, when you're in the South, it is a world of nicknames. <laughs> came, I believe, because I used to mess up so much in golf. They would talk about dubbing shots. And also, I was in the advertising agency business where we made a lot of dubs, right. which were copies. As much as you may dislike your nickname, that's tough luck. You're stuck with it. Gotcha. Well, I'm going to call you William because I'm not from the South, so... Well, somebody said, well, why didn't you name, why didn't you say Dub Anderson wrote this book? I said, nobody's going to buy a book from somebody named Dub. <laughs> you may be right. You may be right. <laughs> so looking at your book, why did you decide to write it as a novel instead of a nonfiction book? Because the issues you raise, which we'll talk about, are very important. But why the novel approach versus the nonfiction approach? Well, I kind of subscribe to what Hemingway said about writers, especially writing novels, is one of our purposes is to make the truth truer. And I think that you can, if you can give a 30,000-foot view of a situation that nobody's really looking at except in a very technical way, hopefully you can give some insight into it if you're a good writer. Uh, that otherwise, if you just kind of did a historical, nonfiction, factual book, Everybody kind of knows that, which I think is one of the problems today where, where it's a communications issue that's part of this whole racial problem. Having majored in journalism and communications at the University of Georgia, I'm really kind of very sensitive to how things are presented today in the news media. And uh, I, I, I wrote this thing because I'm worried to death about our country. I just don't, I'm like everybody else, well, Concern. It seems like so many people are not positive about it. We're all we're building these towers of Babel where we're talking at each other. Everybody's truth is true, which is kind of the other side of uh, having a country built on all kind of different groups. Everybody's truth is the truth. So how do we arrive? At, why do you even talk if you're not even talking about the same subject matter? Mm -hmm. And so I tried to I tried to do a lot of research into the black experience, and into the white experience as I know it. Try to write a balanced account of what happens when both come together with their own ideological strict firmness. How do you resolve that if nobody's willing to move? So I, I thought it was an opportune time for what I, I Actually, I couldn't find a book exactly like this out on Amazon, so I thought, well, it's a subject that intrigues me. So I think I'll take a run at it. I don't know if you agreed with my opening, but I did feel that people are in silos. And so they, the issue isn't so much the issue as people in their silos are reacting to the issue without getting 
the ability to talk with each other. And that's been that way for a while. I think to some degree it's stirred up by politicians and by media. For what purposes, I don't know. But I clearly have been around long enough, and you've been around long enough to know that the past history of the United States was a lot worse than the current reality. And yet the current reality is so full of tension and mistrust and slight and offense that I, I don't know. I don't know how people can't simply just live their lives. I'll leave, it, I'll leave it to you to give us the answer. Well, in some ways, obviously for the blacks, it was worse, a worse time. But, and I would ask when I was younger, uh, and they still had uh, colored only on drink water fountains and they couldn't go to the movies and all the things going on. I'd ask my mom or dad, why things like this? They say, well, that's just the way they are. Today, just the way they are doesn't work anymore. People are far more vocal, far more angry. It's like a there's an emotional level that's on this subject, and not just this subject, the whole woke disagreement, all the cultural things. It's like people are just far more verbal and angry. They get mad if you even talk about it. People that hate Trump, if you even show a picture of him, they go ballistic. Same is true for Biden. Uh, we're just a more angry people right now, venting all the time. But I guess my question, to... my question, though, to you is, why is that given our history, as I mentioned earlier? We're not, there's no more slavery. There's no more segregation. There's been quite a bit of progress in a lot of different ways in the last three, four decades. So where does this anger come from? And it's not just from certain elements of the black community, certain elements of the white community, same situation. It's, it's almost a tripwire or a, as you say, an emotional reaction, as opposed to, okay, let's look at the facts and look, let's see where we are. See, that's a part of the, part of the problem to me that I try to do in this book, is people don't talk frankly. White people feel like they're intimidated. They cannot talk about black people having children out of wedlock, no dad in the home, an angry culture, this or that, or they will be attacked as racist. This whole racist word has a has a power about it that it didn't have in the past. It's like it's all the emotions are ex accelerated. They're on steroids today. They were always there, probably. The blacks were afraid of white people. They're no longer afraid of, of white people. And I have told uh, black friends, I said, in fact, I was told when I came up with the idea, I sent a, a first draft to a well-known uh, Atlanta publisher, editorial writer. I said, take a look at this. She read some of it, called me back and said, I'm warning you, I would not write that novel. I said, well, why not? She said, people are very angry. It's a hot time. Uh, you're very frank in this book. You've got black people and white people saying things you don't normally hear, although it wasn't ugly. It was just very frank in their opinions. And people don't want to hear super strong opinions today. They're so angry about it. I said, well, that's why. And she said, another problem is you're a white guy. You don't know the black experience. How are you going to write on that? And uh, it, was a, it was a good little critique. It got me delving into the whole black experience starting back in the 1600s and learned things that I'd never, I, I, I have an appreciation now of what that race has been through. It's just, it's just unbelievable. It's shocking. 4,000 of them hang 
after the Civil War, it really got bad. If you owned a slave, you didn't want to hurt them too much because you had money in them. They didn't respect them at all after the Civil War, and they treated them like hell, really rough time, really until the 50s and 60s, uh, did things start to loosen up, mainly through federal regulation. So now whites, and, and, and yet it's created a whole angry group of black people. Part of the question I will ask them is, can you, are you a victim of victimhood? So the problem being a victim is it's always somebody else's fault. And it's never your fault. You never change or get out of it, which offends some of them. I mean, anything in how do you have these honest conversations if you really can't even talk honestly to each other, whether they agree with it or not? It's not like you're insulting somebody. But on the other hand, white people, they say, well, white people don't understand us. And I say, well, white, no, they don't. And it's almost like you don't want them to. White people will say, I'm confused, as I wrote in my book. Why are they still mad? All the corporations want to hire them. You got all kind of government services. Universities want to bring them into the school. It would seem to be the best of times for black people, and people run like crazy from the word race. So it does seem, you know, like people saying, what is going on here? Why is a certain group so mad? Another group doesn't seem like they understand them. So I kind of tried to get into that confusion in this novel by being very frank on both sides of the equation. When the book came out, did you get some feedback once it was published from some black friends or even black readers, white readers, other readers? I mean, everybody can read and learn something from it. Did you get some feedback and was it primarily most positive? Of, I did. Yeah, most of it was favorable. They say, well, I, you know, if somebody's not black, I think you'd lay it out a sign that a lot of blacks feel like they're still they're still in effect. The past still affects today to them. They all felt like, well, you got to, maybe that was just them. I don't know who else read the book. Right. They'd say, well, I, th I think you hit a balance, which is all I was trying to do. Maybe make both sides mad or nobody mad. But I hope that each side has a better understanding of this situation. It's just going on and on and on. The problem with it, one problem, and, and whites created it, is the, the word race. Black people are not of another race. They're homo sapiens. sapiens. We're all of the same race. This whole thing was is a construct made by white people so you could put them over there and they say, oh, they're another race. That's why they so this or so that. On the other hand, if you fall for that and think, well, I'm being oppressed all the time, they're the oppressor, you can blame everything on the other people. And so you never improve yourself. You never break out of it. Also found, I think, that past is even more powerful with black people than I realized it. It still does. And at what point, kind of one of those old questions Faulkner brought up is, how much does the past rule the future and rule today? I mean, you can keep living. You can go back all of the infractions, all the bad stuff white people did, and you'll never get out of it. I've worked with a scholarship in Atlanta of incredible young black seniors in high school that we give a scholarship to. They all came from poverty, from busted up homes. And there's these incredible achievers. And I've, I've told many people in the media, I said, one of the problems is, is the source of information you get can determine your opinion on anything. 
if all you hear, if all your white person sees about blacks in Atlanta is Martin Luther King on one hand, who's this Christ-like figure, then you go all the way down to the three black teenagers shooting up Buckhead. There's no middle ground. Where are all the successful blacks? There's thousands of successful blacks that you never hear about. So whites say, well, hell, a whole bunch of shooting. They're shooting up our town. They're riding in the streets, burning this, burning that. We are, we're really pawns in many ways of our media. As a journalism major, I just say, God, why don't they give both sides of this thing? Don't they talk about more than, all they're trying to do is, is get eyeballs and butts in the seats by playing to a certain group, and that group just feeds on that and it justifies how they feel. That includes both Fox and CNN ideologue kind of people. I think that so you're I'm absolutely just, right, William, in the sense that it's an ideology rather than straight yeah. journalism. And when you see something through a prism, it has to be that narrative. And if anything goes against it, as an example, black conservatives or black conservative politicians, they automatically say, well, they're, they're Uncle Tom's. They're, they're not uh, yeah. true black. And that's just one side of it. And the other side is you've got these crazy whites that can distort things as well. So you're, you're treading a middle ground, I think. And again, the book is called The Price of Perfect. And yeah. tell us a little bit about the underpinning of the book. It's about a Jack Collier who is an architect and he wants to build an edifice and there's issues involved. And then I'll, I'll let you do that. I just wanted to set that up a little bit for our, our audience. It's a, thank you. It's about a man, an architect who's brilliant. Uh, he wants to build, he worships uh, Da Vinci. And he thinks he's designed the ultimate building that will put him up in the world of Da Vinci. And he's found it on a piece of land in North Atlanta. A very active, angry uh, black TV reporter discovers that a hanging occurred on that land in 1940. And the tree is still there. She tells the architect, look, tells her what happened, said, you need to make a memorial out of that and save that tree. He says, this is not about the past. This, that was 80 years ago. This is about the future. I'm trying to put Atlanta on the creative map. And that, that tree is right at the entrance of my mall. I'm not going to have a hanging tree at the front of my mall. She says, if you don't, then I'm going to go on social media and just say that you're a racist over this. So the book, the tree becomes a metaphor for America and how we all rally around one thing like that. All the characters in the book, and there are about 20 characters, all in some way have to react to this tree in a way that says something about them. Everybody in the book has fallen to their own degree. Everybody has their own ego needs. And uh, Jack won't move on the building, and she won't move. And then we have a young black man who's super angry, from Connecticut, who goes to Morris Brandon High School, uh, College, he goes out to the tree and attempts to hang himself to bring attention to the 4,000 hanged blacks. And Jack Carter, the developer, saves his life. So it's all kind of stuff around this tree and how various people react to it. With a bigger story of how, where we, what price are we all paying for our own obstinance, for our own ideology, as you correctly said, people are not using rationality and thinking plus or minus. It's all blinded by specific ideology. So how do you shake somebody 
And part of the part of the book is about how strong do you stand for your beliefs? Jack Carter was losing his wife, losing all his friends. They were saying, preserve the blasted tree. He said, art is a perfect statement. And I, if I do that, I'm insulting all the artists that ever lived that tried to do great work. So a lot of conflicts going on, all seeking a solution or resolution, if there can even be one. Were you surprised when you finished it and you were able to get it published, even though you had that warning ahead of time about you're going <laughs> to you're going to face all kinds of uh, headwinds with it? Were you surprised then once it was I published? I, would get, I thought I'd get somebody in the South, but I found that a lot of them thought the subject was so sensitive they didn't want to touch it. But there are a few out there. In fact, race, books on race are pretty hot right now. I was thrilled to hear that Barnes & Noble is actually doing better right now and opening more stores. So it's fun to get carried in those stores. But just an aside, if you're a novelist today and you go to a Barnes & Noble to see your book on the shelf, it's really unsettling to walk down this row of endless books, endless novels, all good. And you think, how in the world is anybody going to ever find my little book? It's uh, Writing is one thing. Marketing a book is a whole other thing. Oh, book. yes. Absolutely right. You, <laughs> and you have a degree in marketing as well. I do, yeah. <laughs> I'm real. I, I just thought of a new name for your book. It's probably too late, but there was A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, but yours would be A Tree Grows in Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> I should have done that. <laughs> so well, maybe on the reprint. We'll see. We see. <laughs> no, I like well, The Price of Perfect. I like that title. Well, I did have uh, my original title was All the Best of Men because Jack Carter and his three best friends thought they were the hottest things in Atlanta, super successful. Uh, they'd risen above all the poverty stuff. And they're the ones that are still, all of them. Carter had given a lot of money to the black community. All the ministers liked him. And a part of it was how the ministers didn't think he was a racist. And yet, when the movement started against him, they felt compelled to swing in behind the movement, which I think is a weakness of a lot of some of the black community. Again, it's, it's our brand, our identity. We're black. We're, we can still be angry. You're not going to mess with us. And I think most, people, most black people I've talked to really don't sit around thinking about the subject as much as you would think the activists are going about it. And I don't think, of course, I know a certain group of whites. They can't, they all give money to charities. They all are, feel like they're friends of many blacks. So both the, their segments, this whole thing can be segmented out into various groups. You cannot speak in generalities. I had one prominent black mayor tell me, he said, I just asked one thing, realize all black people don't think the same way. We're all individuals, and don't just lump us into one group. So I tried to be careful with that. But still, once the movement starts, and this got on social media, and all of a sudden Jack Carter was this racist, egomaniac who hid behind the checks he was giving black people. Once it started moving that, everybody kind of moved in behind it. We talked about the media in general, but social media in particular, do you think that that is a metaphor for, for mob action, because you can get a couple of activists on either side, get people stirred up, and all of a sudden, as you say, it doesn't matter what he's done prior, 
to this decision about the building. Now all of a sudden he's got all these people calling him racist and trying to shut him down. Yeah. You bring up an interesting subject, which I, it just puzzled me about how can a certain ideology or thought process suddenly start taking off across the country. It's almost like a virus. Mm-hmm. And you wonder, how did, the, how did Hitler, who was a nobody artist, start a whole movement that took over his country? And you think of today, not to compare to Nazis, but how people just suddenly all jump on this thought process without careful rational thinking and debate and going over stuff. It's just, woo, we're all on whatever the particular subject is. And if you're not having rational discussions, then you just yell at each other. Really quite interesting. I wish a sociologist or some group of psychologists could just, what goes on that all of a sudden people who were thinking one way are boom. They're thinking a totally different way and you can't move them from it. I don't know that academia would be the place though at this point because mm-hmm. there's a lot of group think going on there. That's a good point. Based on your writing and researching of this subject, even though it's in a novel form, I'm going to ask you the cosmic question, which is, are you optimistic or pessimistic about our society? This is a a bad answer, but I'm both. One is, I'm optimistic when I look at my two sons, both in their late 30s, and how this stuff is, there's not a racial bone in their body. They don't think in those terms. They grew up with black children in in their schools. And I think this whole generations that are moving away from it. On the other hand, you've got a heck of a lot of others who just, they seem to dwell in anger. They seem to find joy in anger of both races. And uh, you can turn on these cables. We can turn on any of them and just see. No, they left that part of the story out. Why did they do that? Or they emphasized this part of the story. And again, we know what we know through the sources of information we're looking at. If those things are biased in one way or they're not giving the whole story, it's almost like, well, how can you be mad at somebody? That's all they knew. That's all they heard. Unless they do what I did and go out and really read a lot of books and talk to a lot of people for a year or two. Nobody's going to take that time. There won't be a full understanding. There are a lot of groups today that are meeting and discussing this. A lot of churches, a lot of white churches are trying to get behind this and and reach out to the black community, having dinners together, doing things together. Proximity is a key word. If you don't see somebody, you don't know somebody. So we need to come together more in in informal settings and the church remains a good way. A lot of the clubs in town, a lot of people just start dinner groups to talk about it. So generally, overall, I'm optimistic about it. In the long term, it's easy short term to be pessimistic. All you got to do is turn on the TV. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do you think, though, that, William, that part of it is class-based rather than, quote-unquote, race-based? What I mean by that is this. You have white middle-class people and black middle-class people. There's a lot of shared values there. There's cultural differences, of course, but that's to be expected of any group of people. But I'm just thinking where you get a, you were talking about that virus spreading, and that could be whether it's uh, what they call a poor white trash, or you can call it ghetto on the other side. But the point is that, that they're locked into these silos, as I referenced in the beginning, and they don't seem to be able to be 
affected by reality in terms of any positive changes over the years and decades. I definitely think uh, there's a class socioeconomic pairing out you could do on this issue. And it's like any other issues. People who are, and everybody that's poor is not ignorant, of course. Right. Uh, so you can't get into that stuff. But uh, a lot of the uh, the black movement is led by liberal white women of money. You see them all over the place. They're very, very active, thinking they're caring and serving the community. A lot of successful blacks I know are really not involved in any of this stuff. They're doing their own thing. They're saying, the hell with race. I'm moving ahead. I'm, I'm going to make it in this world. You know, I thought about a little thing about white people. I've had people say, well, why don't white people like black people? I say, well, it's not they don't like them. I think there's an, an arrogance of ambition that white people, Europeans have, where if some group is not accomplished inventing the building, doing this or that, then there's something, they put them off in a category of ignorance or something. But there are a lot of black achievers, hell of a lot of them. It's just, I just think ignorance is driving a lot of this. And I think, too, William, isn't it cultural rather than racial in that sense? You no. mentioned the European model where if you're not accomplishing stuff, well, you'll put you to the side. But you could put to the side a lot of whites as well because it's, oh, yeah. yeah, it's not based on race. It's based really on, again, going back to class distinction and cultural distinction. One little thing, I, I'm a, I love evolution. I love reading two million years ago what we were. And uh, one one thing that's feeding racism is how we have a propensity for categorizing. We can't know all the details about a person or something, like a cave guy was sat outside of his cave and hit some, some wild-looking man. He didn't know what to do, so you put him in a category. And everybody that kind of acts in that category, well, that's who they are. We dismiss people very easily because we've already put them in a category. Somebody drives up in a Cadillac. Oh, well, they must be rich. Let's put them over there. Or they do this or that. Let's put them over there. It's a human characteristic, and it's a weakness. We also are incredibly judgmental, which I think is an important characteristic to have. Supposedly, it gives you enough rational thinking that you can work your way out of a bad situation. I don't think we really get into a lot of the rich stuff on this whole issue about talking about things like that. Why Why do we act the way we do? We just don't get into it. It's all, oh, well, they're racist, or they're this, or they're that. Right. I don't even want to think about it anymore. <laughs> well, that's, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been William Anderson. He's author of The Price of Perfect, What Could Be the Cost of Standing by Your Beliefs in a Divided America. The book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And for everything about William Anderson, you can go to williamandersonwriter.com, and you can follow him on Facebook and LinkedIn. And William, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Howard. You're so kind to have me. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Enjoyed it as well. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.